want to say something real quick. Um, we've designed the bulletin um, in such a way, two things. Number one, the bulletin reflects um, Isaiah chapter 6, uh, that wonderful scene in which Isaiah sees the glory of God. So our bulletin starts off with adoration and praise and then moves into confession of sin and then it moves into proclamation. And so, so that's how our bulletin is laid out. So that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say is so many of us struggle with personal worship. You know, it's just what do we study? What do we look at? You know, every now and then I'll say, here's a Bible study you can go to. Let me encourage you, use this bulletin as a way of doing personal worship. Um, take, take the bulletin and, and in the mornings just, just go through a portion of it. And it really leads you through um, that time. And you could also, when you have some spare time, just switch out the verses and you could still have a pattern to worship through. That's what I do um, some mornings. I typically have a liturgy that I write for myself, but let me encourage you to do that. Um, this bulletin isn't just for Sunday. It can also be used as an encouragement to your own faith throughout the week as well. So I wanted to point that out. Um, Scott Finch uh, does an excellent job in putting that together. Well, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17 I read an interesting statistic recently that said more people know what's in a Big Mac than they do um, in the Ten Commandments. Um, in, in other words, if you were to stop someone and ask them, hey, what can you list out the Ten Commandments, they wouldn't be able to do that. But if you ask them what's in a Big Mac, um, they can probably tell you exactly what's in it. So one of the things that I want to do as we read this text is I want us to read it together because I want us to see the words. And I want us to know the Ten Commandments. And I want us to be able to, to understand the place that they have in our lives as Christians. These, this forms the ethical foundation of um, our faith. And that's uh, so important. All right, Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. Let's read this text together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, 
the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Well, all flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, indeed, these are your words spoken by your mouth, carved into tablets of stone with your own finger. Um, These scriptures are unique because they are your utterances to not just the children of Israel, but for us now to shape us and to mold us into people that love you and love others. Lord, these commandments are a reminder of your love for us that you have spoken, that you didn't leave us alone to figure it out, that you are not a capricious God who stands in heaven with a lightning bolt in hand waiting to strike us. But instead, because you love us and care for us deeply, you've clearly given us your word. And you've told us exactly what you require. And you've given us of your Holy Spirit to be able to do it. So I pray as we go through the study of the Ten Commandments that we might not look at them as simply commandments, but laws of love that encourage us to love you and to love others and spur us on to good works and flourishing. Bless us now as we look at the first commandment. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, as a pastor, um, every time I open God's word and study it to be able to minister to you all, one of the first things I do is I, I make sure that whatever I'm teaching impacts my heart first. Um, you know, it's, it's every week going through that practice, it, it could become kind of rote. It'd be like, you know, it's like, oh, I have to do a sermon. And so I, I kind of put together the sermon. And, and especially if you've been to seminary or if you've been doing it a while, you kind of lose the fact that this text has to mean something to you or impact your life. It, it almost becomes a job that you do. And that's dangerous. And this week, um, this, this text hit, hit different, as the young people would say. It, it, it kind of hit me a little different. You know, every, every week I try to allow the word of God to really speak and minister to me. But this week especially, it just hit really different. And here's, here's how. If you look at the first commandment, right, you shall have no other God before me. You'll notice that, that it's phrased in the negative, okay? It's phrased in the negative. And, and it's easy for me to look at this and say, oh, this is calling me away from idols, This is calling me away from atheism and unbelief. This is calling me away of horoscopes or calling me away from like palm reading. And it's easy for me to say to myself, well, I don't do any of those things. Like I I don't go and search out a palm reader to tell me what I'm going to do next week. 
I, I don't have a 50-foot idol in the back of my home that I go and sacrifice to and bow down to. So in one sense, it's easy to say, okay, here, here's what the commandment says. You shall have no other gods before me, and I don't do that. At least not, not like physically. I might do that conceptually, right? Um, everybody knows that an iPhone is kind of like the new idol, right? Don't, don't look at me like you don't know that. Like some of you are like, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. Come on, you know. Think of the hours that we spend on our phones, just scrolling, looking, pretending that we're being productive. But we're not, right? We're either shopping or, or looking at something cool to do. The iPhone has become the new idol. But, but besides the iPhone, right? We, we don't have like an altar in the back of our home where we, we worship a whole burnt offering. And so it's easy for us to look at this commandment and say, you know what, I'm good. Because, I, I, you know, outside of my iPhone, right, outside of the toys that I have, I, I, I don't really count those as idols, so I'm good. But here's the thing. This commandment actually calls us to do something. And it's easy to miss. But look at it again. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the negative part. You're not supposed to do that. But it's actually calling you to do something. And here's what it's calling you to do. It's actually calling you to make the Lord your God. It's actually calling you to be passionate about God. It's calling each and every one of us in here today to pursue God with all of our hearts, all of our minds, and all of our souls. I remember being in seminary. This really hit me. Uh, when I was in seminary, I had an Old Testament professor, um, godly, godly man who loved the Lord. And he, he assigned some work, and I, I didn't understand it, so I went to him to try and figure it out. And as I walked in, um, he has a picture just off to his right of Angus Young from ACDC. Hey, how many of you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, some of you know. Some of you don't pretend like you don't. Some of you know. And it's, it's an iconic picture of Ang Angus Young. He's in the schoolboy uniform. He's doing the duck walk. He has the guitar in hand. His head's cocked back and sweat drenched. And I, I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I looked at my Old Testament professor. He's like, I, you know, I didn't know you were an ACDC fan. And he says, oh, I'm not. Like, what? What are you doing with an ACDC picture in your office and you're not an ACDC fan? He says, oh, I use it for motivation. Motivation? How is this motivating to you? And, and here's what he said. He said, look, if Angus Young could be that passionate about playing the guitar, I could be that passionate about serving the Lord. Right? That's what the first commandment is all about. It's not so much what we shouldn't do. The first commandment is saying, how passionate are you towards the Lord? How passionate do you serve the Lord? How passionate do you pursue God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul? That's what God told the children of Israel. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 through 5, that was their ACDC picture, as it were. The word of God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And you shall love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. What is that statement calling all of us to in this building? It's calling us to a positive affirmation of making the Lord our God exclusively, 100%.
with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our might. Now, I got to tell you, I struggle with that. I really do. Because when I search my heart and look in my heart, I could see areas of my own life in which I don't give 100% over to the Lord. There are times when I hold things back. And this week, as I studied this passage and look into this passage, it really, really struck me that this is what God has called each and every one of us to. And this is what we should pursue. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But I only want to focus on the positive side of this commandment, which is this, that we should pursue after the Lord. And I want us to see three things from this commandment. And I'll be brief with some of these comments. The first one is going to be the longest, and then the other two will be somewhat brief. But what does the first commandment call us to? The first commandment calls us to this, to, <clears throat> to acknowledge God as sovereign in our lives. That's what the first commandment calls us. That's the very first thing. It calls us to acknowledge God as sovereign in our lives. Now, notice it says, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, God's saying, like, look, <clears throat> you, you have to cut out everything that threatens or, or anything that goes against my sovereignty. I have to be sovereign in your life. Now, let's back up for a moment. What is sovereignty? One of the greatest expressions of sovereignty that I've ever read is, uh, came to me, or I read, um, by a, a scholar by the name of Abraham Kuyper. And here's what Kuyper says about the sovereignty of God. He says, there is not a square inch in a whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry mine. Now, what is Kuyper saying here? Kuyper is saying this. God's sovereignty means that God is in complete control, not over his creation, but also over you. That every aspect of our creation is under the sovereign hand of the Lord God Almighty. And that includes you. God is sovereign in your life, and we have to acknowledge that. Now, how does the first commandment show us that? Well, first of all, it's first. It's first. Have you ever wondered why you shall not murder isn't first? That's pretty important. Nobody in here wants to be murdered. Why didn't God put that first? Or what about the commandment to covet? That, that's a pretty big one. Why isn't that first? Well, the reason why it isn't first is because God is trying to establish his sovereignty over creation first. Let me say it a little bit different. Before you break any of the other commandments, you have to break the first commandment. Before you commit adultery, you have to deny the sovereignty of God over your body. Before you lie, you have to deny the sovereignty of God in truth. Before you sin in any way, any sin that you commit is first and foremost a denial of the sovereignty of God. Let me ground us in scripture real quick. If you go to Psalm 51 verse 4, right? Psalm 51 in general. Most of us are familiar with Psalm 51, but if you're not familiar with Psalm 51, let me help you. In Psalm 51, you have this beautiful confession of David. Um, the background of that is David sinned with Bathsheba, um, you know, and, and then after that, he takes, um, takes her husband, Uriah, puts him on the front line, and, and then causes him to die, right? 
And he tries to cover it up. And then one day the prophet, Nathan, comes to him and calls him out for his sin. And after that happens, he writes Psalm 51. And as you read through Psalm 51, you read his expression of of repentance. You read his expression of, of, of asking God to forgiveness. And then David makes this statement. David says, against you and you only have I done this sin. And it's almost like a record scratch. Wait a minute, what? Against you and you only have I said, David, are you even thinking straight? David, you committed state-sponsored rape. You used the power of the military to kill an innocent man. You destroyed the lives of two families. How is it possible that you could say this sin that you committed was against God and God only? That's scandalous. Now hear me. The reason why David can say that is because of this. David understands that every sin that we commit is against God. And not only that, David understands that what makes something a sin is because God says it's a sin. What made David's adultery actually adultery? Who cares what everybody else in the kingdom said? What made that wrong is because there's a holy God that says it's wrong. What made his murder of Uriah a sin? Was it, was it because everybody got together and had a consensus that it's sin? No. What made that sin is that God says it's sin, and he violated the holy commands of God. Now, you might be sitting there and say, Pastor, well, I get that, but why is that so important? Here's why that's so important. Because David knew that he violated the commands of a sovereign God, he knew that only God can cleanse him. I've mentioned this before. I, in a part of my life, way back, um, I remember I, I, I was in a dating relationship, and it went south. And, and I hurt this young lady v- badly. Um, well, anyway, a, a few years later, I reflected on that situation, and I was so broken by it that I called her up. And I said, hey, um, I'm sorry. Uh, please forgive me. Um, I, I made a huge mistake. And, and she, on the other line, said, I do not forgive you. Do not call me again. And she hung up. Now, here's why I tell you that story. There are times in our life when we've done things to other people in which they might never forgive us. Never. No matter if we seek forgiveness from them, no matter if we ask them to forgive us, they'll never forgive us. But what David is, is realized here is this. If he truly uh, wants to be cleansed, he has to realize that that sin that he ultimately committed was against God and God alone. And because of that, it's God who grants forgiveness. You know, we could be taskmasters towards one another. We could hurt one another. We could never forgive each other. And there'd be no absolution from that sin. And we could hold that against each other for the rest of our lives. But because David knows that his sin was ultimately against God, David acknowledged God's sovereignty in his life. And he said, God, I sinned against you ultimately. Every sin that I commit is ultimately against you. And therefore, I go to you because you're sovereign over my life. 
And I know that you could provide forgiveness for that sin. And let me tell you something. When you've been cleansed by God, there's nothing like that. When you know that you've hurt the heart of God and you go to him, the Bible says if we confess that sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's the promise of scripture. Now, I want to say something else under this. The second reason in my mind that it's so important to understand God's sovereignty in your life is when we fight temptation. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1 through 11, you'll see the temptation of Jesus Christ. And if you read through the temptation of Jesus Christ, one of the things you recognize is this. Every temptation that Satan gives Jesus is trying to get him to break an aspect of the first commandment. Go through it. You, you'll notice the first one. Turn bread into stone. What is he trying to do there? He's trying to say, well, you use your power to turn this bread into stone instead of waiting on God to provide for you. And what does Jesus tell him? Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, he's telling him, Satan, I will not go beyond what God has provided for me. And what about the second time? He says, throw yourself off this pinnacle and God will catch you. And what does Jesus say? I'm not going to tempt the Lord, your God, like that. Then Satan shows him all the kingdoms. And what does Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord, your God, and him alone you shall serve. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, you are not going to cause me to go against and sin against God. Because he's sovereign in my life. Brothers and sisters, this is tremendously important for all of us. And here's why. Let me give you a few quick examples. There are many of us inside here today who will say, you know, I, I won't sin against my wife by, by cheating because I don't want to ruin my family. Now, that's a, that's a good reason to do that. That's wonderful. But you know what? That's not a high enough reason. You shouldn't want to cheat against your wife because God is sovereign over your marriage and he has called you to that marriage. And it is him that you look to in your marriage. Some of you might say, well, you know what, Pastor Dennis, I don't want to steal on my job because if I steal on my job, I might get fired. Now, that's a, that's a wonderful reason why not to steal in, in your, on your job. But you know what, that's not a high enough reason. The reason why you shouldn't steal from your employer is because you serve a sovereign God and you are under his control. It doesn't matter what the sin is. The reason why we don't pursue sin and the reason what keeps us, from, uh, keeps us um, onward to pursue righteousness is because we want to honor the Lord our God. He's sovereign over us. Look, when God is sovereign over you, your whole outlook on life changes. When God is sovereign over you, that stops you from being bitter. When God is sovereign over you, that stops you from being offended at what people say about you. When God is sovereign over you, every aspect of your life changes because you realize it's him in control and not you. That's what this first commandment teaches us. Now, what about the second, uh, the second thing that I want to show you is this. This commandment. The, second, the first commandment causes us to rely on the sufficiency of God. What do we mean by the sufficiency of God? It means that God is all we need. Do you believe that? Now, how do we see that in this commandment? Go to verse number two. 
Now, uh, so many scholars say that actually verse number two and verse number three is one commandment. And here's how it reads. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, how does this uh, demonstrate the sufficiency of God? Well, in verse number two, God says that I alone am the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of slavery? Who delivered you out of the land of slavery? Now, God is not saying because I delivered you, you owe me. That's not the point of this text. What God is saying in here is much more profound, and here it is. In the ancient Near East, you'll have a king, a mighty king. When he wins a battle, a famous battle, he would draw it on the walls. So let's just say for a moment, CVBC won a great battle in the valley. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So we won, apparently we won a big battle and someone's happy about that. Now remember this is pretend, we don't go out winning battles. At least it's spiritual battles, right? So let's just say the CVBC is fighting a battle and we're fighting the battle against Rossville, right? I'm gonna take this illustration a little bit further. And, you know, we rally the troops, and we go, and we conquer Rossville. Yay! And we turn them into the valley. Well, what we'd do is we'd come back, and we would draw that battle all over these walls. We'd draw the battle all over the walls. And every time we walked in, we would see that we conquered Rossville. And we'd rejoice over that. And we'd be happy over that, right? Now, now why is that the case? Why would we want to do that? Because we would want to remind ourselves that whoever the king was, whoever the leader was, was more than sufficient in, in taking care of any other battle. We fought the biggest battle there is. We defeated Rossville. That means every other battle we face will pale in comparison to that battle. Because the biggest battle has already been won. Think of how significant that is. Nahum Sarna, who is a, who's an Old Testament scholar, said this, that, when, that if you read through the Bible, the, phrase, the statement, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, that this is the overriding pivotal event, the dominant theme in Israel's history that cemented their relationship with God and Israel. So in other words, Nahum Sarna is saying this, that statement it's like the drawing on the wall to remind Israel that Jesus Christ, God, is sufficient for them. That every other battle they will face in their life, God is taking care of it. Now, what does that mean for you and I? Well, it simply means this. God is sufficient. The biggest battle, Christian, the biggest battle that you will ever face in your life, God has already won for you. And that is bringing you out of darkness into light. Do you realize that? The greatest battle that God has accomplished for you has already been done. Paul says in Colossians 1.3, He has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what God has done for each and every one of us who named the name of Christ. Which means this, every battle you face in your life from here on out, will never measure up to that battle. Every battle. I, um, I heard uh, 
one of my professors in seminary um, was talking to us. We were in a worship class, and he was talking to us about battling sin. And he said he was walking on the beach, and he was praying to God, crying out to God. He says, God, I've been battling this sin my whole life. I've been struggling with this issue my whole life, and I can't seem to get the victory. And he said um, he had to teach on the sufficiency of Christ in one of his Bible classes about uh, a few days uh, later. And as he pondered that, it came to him, he said, that God had already won the biggest battle in my life, and that's securing my salvation, rescuing me from, from darkness into light. And he said, in that moment, in that moment, he felt free. Because he realized if God can conquer, right, the enemies of his soul, then there is no temptation, no battle, no struggle, nothing that he can go through that is too hard for the Lord. That's what God wanted Israel to know. That's why this is repeated over and over again in the Old Testament. That's what God wants you to know, that he is sufficient for you. And the question is, do you believe that? You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, um, a famous English preacher, once says that we believe in God, but we don't believe God. I'll say that one more time because you could miss the potency of the statement. We believe in God, but we don't believe God. And here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying. For so many people, they believe in God. They believe God exists. They believe God saved them. They believe God is real. But they don't believe God when God speaks in his word to them. That there are times in their life when they, when they battle with discouragement. There are times in their life where they battle with loss of hope. And they read God's word and they read the promises of God. And they struggle to believe what God has said. They struggle to believe God when he says that no good thing will he withhold from them who walk uprightly. They struggle to believe God when he says, he that begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. They struggle to believe God when God says that he is their great reward. and There's nothing else that they need or require. They believe God. They believe in God, but they don't believe God. Is that where you are today? Do you believe in God, but you don't believe the promises of God? That's what this commandment calls us to. Quickly, the last thing I want to show you today is that this commandment calls us to make God exclusive in our life. Again, look at verse number three. You shall have no other gods before me. That's a shocking statement. No other gods, nothing else. It's a shocking, absolutely shocking statement. Imagine for a moment if a political party was to pass a law and said you shall not vote for any other political party but us. Nobody in here would be okay with that. Or what if, or what if Walmart got the U.S. government to pass a law and say, you shall not shop anywhere else but Walmart. Now, some of us might not mind that because we shop at Walmart all the time, but others of us might have a huge problem with that. Or what if you have a friend and your friend comes to you and says, hey, we've been friends a long time, and so I think you should have no other friend but me. 
what are you talking about? You're crazy. Right? Now, now why, is it, why is it that in those instances, that's just shocking? Of course, we wouldn't want to vote for just one political party or have just one friend or only shop at Walmart. That's ridiculous. Now, the reason why that's the case is this. Those relationships are not meant to be exclusive. You know, the reason why we have so many different places that we can shop at is because we want competition. The reason why we have multiple political parties is because we want uh, varying factions uh, working things out. The reason why we have multiple friends is because that's the nature of the relationship. But let me say this. When it comes to God, the relationship is meant to be exclusive. It's hard to notice this, but if you go to look at verse number three, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. The words before me means before my face. It's actually a, a technical word to mean uh, a relationship that you don't want to parade someone else before the face of God because you are in relationship with God. Uh, a few years ago, I watched, I, I was just curious. Let me preface that. I was curious, and so I watched an episode of Sister Wives. How many of you have ever seen that? Right? Not many of you. Uh, it's, it's, it's a show, essentially, where a, a bunch of women are in one house, and they have one husband. Usually five or six of them. It's in the Mormon religion, uh, generally. Now, again, I was just curious because I had heard about it. And I said, I'll watch an episode of it. And as I watched the episode, I couldn't believe it. All these women with one man. He must be insane. Right? But, but the thing that got me is as they, were, as they were interviewing all of them, the thing that all of them said consistently was this. It's hard when he is with another of the wives. Now hear me, beloved. It's, it's tragic. It's a tragic show. I don't, I don't recommend that you watch it. I don't, because it's, it, it, it really degrades marriage. But the one thing that kept coming up over and over, they said it's hard, it's difficult to see another woman with your husband. And I agree with them. It's supposed to be hard because we understand marriage is an exclusive relationship. In the same way, God is calling us to an exclusive relationship with him. No other gods but me. God requires complete devotion. Why? Because he's completely devoted to us. Do you realize that God's completely devoted to you? So it only makes sense that he requires devotion from us. Jesus, I think, said it well in the New Testament when he says, anyone that will come to me must hate father and mother. Now, what's Jesus saying there? Jesus isn't saying we should literally hate our father and mother. The point that Jesus is making here is that our love for him, our love for God, should have an exclusiveness to it because it's the most important relationship we have. We must be singularly devoted to God because he's singularly devoted to us. That's why God works to destroy all the idols in our life. I've said this before, but it's worth saying again. I think God creates financial crashes 
for us to get to a point where we're not worshiping money. There are times when God causes um, family discord so we don't worship family. There are times when God causes illness to teach us not to worship health. There are times, I think, are definitely the case that God causes ages, aging to teach us not to worship beauty. God is zealous for your love towards him. Now, what's the big takeaway here? The big takeaway is simply this. The first commandment calls on us to love the Lord your God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with everything that we have. This is a life-dominating reality. Jesus captures it well in Matthew 16, 24, when he says this, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow after me. Deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow after me. Why would Jesus ask us to do that? Because that's what he did for us. Do you see the paradigm of the gospel? The gospel calls us to lay aside ourselves, to lay aside our desires, to lay aside everything in order to pick up our cross and follow after him. Now, some of you um, are looking at me and say, well, Pastor Nance, that seems extreme, that we should dedicate our whole lives towards God. Yeah, let me, let me say this in closing. I know I'm supposed to close so many times. I, I'm going to land this plane eventually, but let me, hear, let me say this one last thing. Um, recently, I, I was on, I was, I was looking at something, and I, and I saw Ronaldo's workout. How many of you know who Ronaldo is? He's a famous soccer player. You know, Ronaldo works out for six hours a day. He wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. He, he, he has a workout regimen where he, wor- he gets up, he works out, and then he goes back to sleep. Then he wakes up again, eats, works out all day, all day. You know what I realized? No one calls that extreme. You know what people call that? Oh, he's dedicated. Elon Musk spends 20 hours, or used to, probably still does, spend 20 hours a day working on SpaceX. You know, nobody calls that extreme. You know what people call that? Oh, he's dedicated. Why is it that when we talk about serving the Lord and giving our all to the Lord, we immediately say, oh, pastor, that's extreme. You want me to center my whole life around Jesus and do what he says and what he wants? That's extreme. But when Ronaldo does it, or Elon Musk does it, or somebody else does it, it's commitment. It's commitment. They're really dedicated to their craft. No, 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 no. What the first commandment is calling on all of us to do is what they're doing. But only thing for Jesus. Craft your entire life and your entire being around him because he is sovereign. He is sufficient. And he's worth it. Father, we thank you so much for the beauty and majesty of your word. Lord, the first commandment does call us to center our complete entire life around God. And Lord, help us to do it. We need to do it. It's only through that can we truly learn to love and to serve others. Bless us now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.